morning, everybody, and welcome to the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association's Facebook page for this live broadcast of Tales from the Heart, which will become podcast Tales from the Heart, available at your favorite iTunes or podcast provider, Spotify, iTunes, etc. Today, I am joined by Dr. Martin Marin of both Tufts Medical Center up in Boston and Morristown Medical Center here in New Jersey's HCM programs. And we're going to have an interesting talk today. We will take your questions um, at the conclusion of our kind of comments on these areas. But we've spent the past couple of months talking a bit about um, the anatomy of HCM, the history of HCM, obstruction in HCM, both with Dr. Marin and Dr. Lever. And we had Dr. Alavato join us to talk about clinical trials and the ESC research. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the future. What do we think is coming? What do we think we need to do to prepare for the future? And how can we all work together to make it a better future? So welcome to the program, Dr. Marin. And how are you today? How is Boston? Good. It's good to see you as always. Um, and hello to the HCM patient community. Um, but I know it's a I'm sure there's a lot of people tuning in today because there's a slow, slow news cycle going on right now. So I have, I'm sure there's a lot of people tuning in right now to us. So um, otherwise, yeah, no, everything else is going well. It's, 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 uh, it's good here. Um, no issues. Weather's good. So no complaints. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We know everybody's a little tense in the United States today. Um, and we just hope that we get some clarity and calm in the coming weeks. So fingers crossed. Here, so it is November 6, 2020. It's still 2020. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. 2021 is coming soon. Hopefully it'll be a little bit better. So I want to start off talking about some of the clinical trials and some of the hopeful advancements that we're, we're looking towards in HCM care. Can you talk a little bit about what's What's happening right now? Where are we with, you know, there's two major trials going on right now. You want to talk a little bit about myocardia, cytokinetics, and what's going on there? Sure. Sure. So, you know, you know, I think what's going on is an exciting time, you know, for HCM. And I think what we're, what we're seeing really is the culmination of, you know, a number of years of, of research and uh, development by one or more, you know, pharmaceutical companies that have now focused um, on development of new drug therapies for this disease. Um, you know, as many know, uh, we don't really have any drugs, you know, for HCM that were specifically developed or tailored for this disease itself. We use drugs that were um, developed for other diseases and apply them here. Um, and so what's going on now is sort of the culmination of years and years of research and development in, in, in identifying drugs that could be useful and helpful for this disease and, 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 and therefore this patient population. And what that means specifically really is a novel or new class of drugs, and they're called myosin inhibitors. That's the name of the class of drugs, myosin inhibitors. And what this, what these drugs do, what these drugs do in this class, and, and let me say that 
they're still under development, which means that you know they're you know they're in certain stages of advanced development. So, as many may know, just to be clear, in the in the U.S., for new drugs to ultimately make it into the marketplace and become accessible for patients to use, they have to go through um, testing in a phase one, phase two, and a phase three level, and then after phase three. The regulatory agency, the FDA, evaluates the information to determine um, if a drug should be uh, put on the market uh, for use um, based on efficacy, meaning how good the drug is, and safety as well. All that's taken into consideration. So the, this myosin inhibitor class of drugs is in various stages of development. Uh, there's two, I should say, that are in various stages of development. The first is made by a company called Myocardia. It's a company that is based in San Francisco, and their first drug that they've ever developed was for this disease. And um, that is uh, called Mavicamptin. Uh, many may have heard about it um, and read about it. So Mavicamptin is the first, what we call first in class uh, myosin inhibitor drug. There's a second version, uh, which would be second in line, uh, myosin inhibitor made by a company called Cytokinetics, which is a little bit more of an established pharmaceutical company based as well, actually, in San Francisco. At one point, these two companies were right across the street from each other, actually. Um, and, and Cytokinetics has, have a longer history of developing drugs in other diseases, um, but they've developed their own myosin inhibitor. doesn't have a name yet. It's in earlier development, so it's in phase two study, as opposed to Mavicamptin, which has just completed phase three study. So it's farther along in what we know about it for HCM. And you know, just to kind of make a, a little bit of a longer story short, essentially what these what this drug what these drugs do is they are treat they're drugs that are considered treatments, new treatments for symptoms related to obstructive HCM. And simply the way they work is they decrease kind of how forceful the heart contracts in HCM, and by kind of dialing that force of contractility down a little bit, you can lower, or in some cases abolish, the outflow track gradient. And by doing that, patients will feel better. And so the idea is here, the idea here is to provide another drug therapy option in addition to beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, and norpace, another option for patients to have to treat symptoms related to obstructive HCM. Let me stop there. That's sort of a summary about where we are with that. So where do you see, okay, diving in here a little bit. So we're thinking futuristically. The mm -hmm. fact is right now, neither of these agents are approved by the FDA. The only way you can get them is if you're in a clinical trial. So there's very small groups of people that have actually tried them. We have no long-term data whatsoever on what they do to other parts of the body. We're assuming not anything significant, but we don't know yet. It's still new and we're still in trial. So I'm going to go into the world of hypothesis here and say, okay, they hit the market. Okay, they work for some of us. What exactly do we think it is that they might be able to do for the patient community in terms of mechanism of what's it going to make better and what symptoms does that correlate to? Yeah, well, I think it's a great question. I think 
based on what we know today, which is based on most of the information that's come out of the Mavic-Campton experience, meaning the phase two and phase three studies, which by the way, is really mostly about 200 to 300 patients with HCM that have gotten the drug, that's it, for a very limited amount of time, as you were saying. So that's a really important point first, is our information is limited here because the number of patients that have actually been in clinical trials on the drug is a small number, relatively speaking, and that those patients have been on the drug a very short period of time as well. So the conclusions that we can draw um, about both how effective the drug is and how safe it is are limited to some degree, okay? So with that said, um, you know, I think what the idea here is, is that the drug can first and foremost lower gradient in patients to, as I said, translate into a symptomatic benefit. So decreasing symptom burden that couldn't be otherwise, that would otherwise be attributed to pressure gradient in the heart, the obstruction from the mitral valve mitral. So by, by improving that, you improve quality of life. So they're not, so we look at, so the, the idea here is that these are drugs that would improve quality of life or symptom burden that's due to obstructive HCM um, first and foremost. That's the idea, okay? And hopefully do it reliably long-term, although we don't know that yet, and hopefully do that safely as well, which we have limited amount of information about as well, okay? So that's the first and foremost goal of the drugs. Okay. And are there symptoms that people are having that are impairing their quality of life um, currently that this type of an agent might make better or decrease? Yeah, I think in, in any of the symptoms in an individual patient that could be attributed to obstruction, a drug like this could help. That includes... Uh, most commonly exertional shortness of breath. Many patients out there listening with obstructive HCM, that form of the disease, you know, probably can relate to shortness of breath, particularly with inclines like stairs or hills, or even walking quickly on level ground out of breath more than they should be. Exertional fatigue as well is another aspect that could be improved. Chest pain, you know, is another facet of obstructive HCM that could see benefit with the drug. Um, and also palpitations or feeling kind of these forceful heartbeats that, that patients also all often experience with obstructive HCM. So all of that could be made better potentially with a drug that lowers the gradient. So we are in the watch and wait and collect data phase. Um, we will be helping, HCMA will be assisting in the recruitment for another clinical trial coming up soon. You'll hear more about that once all the paperwork is done. And we all hope that patients consider participating in clinical trials, um, whether it be Mavicampton trial, the Cytokinetics trial, there's going to be opportunities for you to get involved and we encourage you to look at all of the data and make the best decision for you and your family. And if it fits in to please consider participation in a clinical trial, because it's going to help us all learn more. I'm going to pivot here and I'm going to be very mindful of time today because we can't, we can't just keep going today, guys. We have a hard stop at 1155. We're out. So um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the bigger, broader things with HCM. 
We know that right now in the United States, there's under 140,000 individuals who are actually under treatment for HCM. But we know both by uh, your dad's research and your own research and many others that the prevalence is probably closer to 1 in 200, not 1 in 500. So that means there's over 700,000 people in the United States alone. I'm not doing worldwide numbers here. I'm just talking the good old United States right now. 700,000 people are walking around right now today with diagnosable, treatable HCM. How can we find them and get them into care better? I'm going to first ask about family screenings. And do you think everybody's doing the best job that they can do to make sure every family member is screened? Or do we need a little bit more work there? Yeah, I think... I think probably the answer to that is that we need to do a better job there. Yeah, you know, for sure. Um, I think some of the, the challenges uh, in that area are related to the fact that, you know, it's a tough conversation that I think that people, you know, it's for, for people to have with other family members, you know? So in other words, when, when the cardiologist sees the HCM patient in clinic and as part of that conversation discusses the need to have other family members tested for HCM because it's a genetic heart disease, either with echo or genetic testing, or both, um, and that's a you know that that's you know a lot of times that's all we say you know we kind of go through that but we don't really you know give that patient perhaps maybe better help in 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 how to have that conversation with other family members to really you know provide the opportunity to deliver the message, the really important message about the need to have these other family members screened in a way that will allow these people, these patients to, to do that the right way. I think that that maybe is this falls back on the cardiologists and the cardiology team's responsibility. Maybe we could do a better job of framing that in a way for patients so that they can have the have the understanding about how to do that in a way other than just saying you need to you need to let x y and z know that they need an echocardiogram for screening i think sometimes that that just falls too short and 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 doesn't really get to the core issues which is that there's a lot of other um, uh, issues going into why that message may not be conveyed to other family members there may be feelings of guilt um, et cetera, that, that limit that message from, from, from really expanding beyond the way it needs to. And so that is an area that we need, I think we need to do better on. I do too. I can tell you that in our, in our data set, about 12 to 14% of everybody who is diagnosed in the HCMA database right now was diagnosed because of a family screening. Right. So that number's a bit low, and it, it when we started, it was a little it was a little under twelve percent, and now it's up to fourteen percent. So you can call it a win to go up two percent, but I'd like to go up by twenty percent and make sure that every family is very clear on these screenings. I think another part of the problem here, and I'm curious as to your insight, is twenty years ago we gave a different message on family screening, or not we, but community doctors. Well, if I did the echo and it's not there, you're fine. I unfortunately know a lot of family members who were lost because they were told they only needed to screen once and they were done. 
Can you go over what the screening recommendations are in a family? Let's talk yeah. about the under 25-year-olds. What's that look like, and what does it look like when they're over 25? And that's a soft number there. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, that's 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 a great point. I mean, we, you know, I, I got to tell you, even still to this day, we hear patients that come in to tell us that they were told by their, you know, their other physician that they that their children just needed one echo, for example. And so even even the message that's being delivered about screening isn't consistent with what the guidelines and what what we want to see happen happen. And so what is that? You know, that's basically. Um, the idea that we generally, generally start screening, for example, children of affected family members, usually at the beginning of puberty uh, with an echocardiogram uh, and EKG, you know, every one to two years, in, you know, through adolescence to evaluate for the development of HCM during that period of time, which is a period of time where you know, most patients that are going to develop HCM will develop it, okay? There's something about puberty where um, a lot of the changes that are going on in the body also affect the heart. And that's where we can start to see the increased wall thickness. And that is why screening children um, or adolescents during that period of time is almost on an every year basis. At the end of development, you know, which is usually early 20s, depending on the person, um, if the echo is negative then, or normal, I should say at that point, then we don't say bye and send patients off into the sunset because there is still a small but real chance of disease development occurring um, in, in that period of time in the 20s and 30s and even up to midlife. And so it's not as frequent, but we continue screening usually every three years or so until somewhere around midlife. And if the echoes are normal then, that's usually a good enough indicator to stop screening then. So I think the right. definition of midlife changes as you age, yeah. because midlife to yeah. me sounds like about 60 now, but um, it used to sound like 30. What's midlife? <laughs> well, we usually say, you know, what we usually say is sort of mid forties. You know, that that's, I think that's fair range where if the echo has been normal to that point, patients can be can be relieved of having more screening. Unless symptoms develop at some point after, then of course, a patient needs to be evaluated. But we stop screening usually mid 40s. So does screening just mean an EKG, an echo, and a checkup with a cardiologist? Or sometimes might we need to use advanced imaging so in these we, families? Yeah, yeah. So, so when we're talking about screening with imaging, we can talk as well if you want about how we use genetic testing in, in the screening arena as well, because obviously that's its greatest strength in a way. Absolutely. But when we talk about imaging, there's a little bit of variability there about, about uh, whether or not you know, a center will, will use an MRI. I can tell you that what we do here is at Tufts, for example, and I think this is reflective of other centers too, is that in children of you know, affected family members, we usually get a baseline MRI, usually at the beginning of puberty, okay, in addition to the echo at that time. That kind of allows us to make sure that we didn't miss any areas of increased wall thickness on the echo, which can sometimes happen, that's rare, but can sometimes happen, but also serves as a really good imaging baseline so that if down the line, it looks like the echo has changed, then we would get another MRI at that point and we'd be able to compare it to the one we had initially. So we will, we will do MRIs in that way, or if we don't see all of the LV wall, the left ventricular wall, 
in as good a way as we need to with the echo, then we will get an MRI. So let's talk about genetic testing in family screenings. Sure. Right now we know that uh, it's incredibly cost effective at this moment in time, which is again, November 6, 2020. Um, we currently have a program with one of the genetic testing companies in Vitae. They are a sponsor of Tales from the Heart. Um, just want to disclose that. Um, but they're offering free genetic testing to any family member with HCM. So if you know the mutation in your family, there's not really a financial obstacle now to, to genetic testing. We, we, right. we have these options available to us. So what's the value? If somebody is midlife, they've got two kids, they've got three siblings, and they have HCM, what could they use genetic testing for? Yeah, that's right. So the value, so the value of genetic testing may depend in large part on, you know, an individual family's situation. And so what I mean by that, and, and I think what you were inferring is this, we use genetic testing, you know, most, mostly to identify whether or not a family member, children, other siblings, are at risk or not of developing HCM in the future if they have a family history of HCM and somebody else in the family. And just so everybody understands how, sort of how that, let's just talk about how that works specifically. So, you know, let's say you're, say you're, you have HCM and you have two children and they're young, you know, they're eight and 10 and you have HCM and you're, you know, let's say you're the father and you're in your, you know, mid forties. Um, what you can do in that scenario is draw blood, send it off for genetic testing for HCM. And if we get back a result that demonstrates that in that patient, we were able to find a mutation that we know is causing the HCM, what we call disease causing mutation or pathogenic mutation, then that opens up the opportunity to test the children or anybody else in the family that's blood related to that patient to determine if they have that same mutation. So for simplest purposes, let's say it's mutation X, um, then everybody could be tested for mutation X. And if a family member does not have that mutation, that's great. That means that person is not going to develop HCM. I can't say 100%, but it's pretty close. Like 98%, yeah. Pretty close, pretty close. I mean, for the purposes of at least this discussion, let's say that pretty much rules out the possibility of that patient developing HCM. That's very powerful. That can relieve a lot of anxiety, obviously a lot of stress. Um, it can inform families about whether or not that child, you know, would be better served engaging in sports, you know, because you know they're not going to develop HCM. That's one example of how it could potentially be that information could be leveraged. Um, but of course, if you do that, you have to be prepared um, for the flip side of the coin, which is that a child, let's say the child has the mutation. Okay. At that point in time, usually we've already done an echo. So we know they don't have HCM by echo at, let's say, age eight but they have the mutation because you've done genetic testing. What that means then is that that child is at increased risk to develop HCM at some point, okay? But it's not 100%, okay? That I would, means that- I, I'd pause there and tell listeners to go back to my conversation with Perry Elliott, where we talked about disease positives and the penetrance and how common it was right. 
for somebody who was gene positive to turn to phenotype positive. So you can dive into that podcast. That's right. That's called penetrance. Mm -hmm. If the penetrance was 100% in HCM, that means that every person that got the mutation would eventually develop HCM, meaning they would develop the thickening of the heart that you could then detect with echo or MRI. But it's not 100%. And in fact, we don't actually know precisely what the number is. It's high, but it's not 100 because we know that there are many family members who live their whole life as carriers of the mutation that never express the disease. And that's important point because when you're making that decision to do genetic testing in this context, the results of genetic testing can still be available to certain people like insurers, not health insurers, at least right now, because that's illegal to discriminate, so to speak, uh, about uh, pre-existing genetic diagnosis, which this would fall under, but life and disability insurers are not under those constraints and can get access to that information and make decisions about policies using that information. So there are implications, you know, to, to that testing that go beyond a medical you know, situation that can involve insurance, et cetera. So I'll just clarify with Gina, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act protects against discrimination on genetic status based on or for purposes of employment, education, access to health insurance. So the genetic information can't be used against your non-HCM family member for those purposes, but life insurance companies and long-term disability companies may not necessarily deny you coverage, but they may rate you and you may pay a higher rate for your coverage if you're gene positive. So it's always advised to meet with a genetic counselor beforehand, know all of your options, possibly get life insurance in place for children so that they have a policy at a reasonable price for their future, and you can plan for that. Um, but it doesn't. It shouldn't be a deterrent in a family that has a significant history to get screened just because you might have to pay a little bit more for life insurance at some point in the future. So, you know, you have to balance that. So getting back to our topic of future, which we just went way into the future because you're buying your children life insurance for their, for their grandkids someday, potentially, hopefully. Um, we, we've learned a lot about genetics. We can find the mimickers of HCM easily, which there are a small percentage of us that have you know, Fabry's disease or Dan's disease or something other than a sarcomeric mutation, and we can send them off to get their proper treatments. And then the rest of us, we can just kind of watch, wait, and wait for this information to maybe turn into something more useful. Do you think there will be a potential role for prognostic use of genetic information? I mean, that was the hope. You know, certainly that was the hope when the, this sort of genetic era began in HCM, which is now almost 20 years old, or 25, maybe 30 years now when the first mutation was identified uh, for H- that responsible for HCM, was the idea that you know, you'd be able to do genetic testing and depending on the mutation, whatever, you would have mutations that were bad and that we would then call patients back up and say, you've got a mutation that's not good you need to come back in and get an ICD or you need to be on this med because of that or that med. Um, in other words, the impact, the, there was the hope that genetic testing would impact the, the management um, of patients with this disease by being able to tell us the prediction of the future for that patient. And that 
just hasn't panned out essentially it just didn't go that way probably because of two things one the number of mutations responsible for hcm was much 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 larger than we ever thought when this whole thing began right. you know 30 years ago we're up to you know several thousand mutations that you know different mutations that can be responsible for hcm so it's hard then to to make kind of relationships between mutation and outcome when you've got so many different mutations, many of which, by the way, are unique to individual families, right? Like exactly. mine, yes. That's right. So that, that means it's going to be probably impossible, I shouldn't say impossible, but very difficult for us ever to be able to predict the future for an individual patient based solely on the mutation alone. So we shouldn't really just wait to get the information on our gene before we decide to do something. That's not going to help. Right. I mean, it's not going to, It does, as we say, it doesn't really impact the management of the patient with HCM, really. It's really done for the two reasons that you said. Assess other family members for their risk or not of developing HCM, or if there's some question about whether the patient has HCM or another disease that looks like HCM, genetic testing can help resolve that differential dif diagnosis issue. And, and that's where we are. We don't, we, don't, we don't otherwise make management decisions you know, based on the genetic testing results. Okay, so we talked about futuristic NEDs that are in trial. We talked about the need to do better in family screenings, the use of genetics for the future. Um, all important topics. Can I just make one point too sure. about the drug? Just real quick, I just want to make the point that uh, for the for for everybody, you know, again listening, just a, just one important point. You know, it is a great era now for HCM. You know, to put it again in perspective, which I think is one of the advantages of this podcast, this conversation between you and I. You know, is the ability to put what's going on now into context for decades. Drug companies, pharmaceutical companies, had very little to no interest in developing therapies for this disease, which is why we went 30, 40 years with no new drug, right? That's now not the case. We've got, a, 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 I would say, a, a fairly large amount of interest in that among certain spec sectors of the, car, of the pharmaceutical industry. And on that note, I will tell you, we talked about myosin inhibitors. Without going into any sort of too much more detail, uh, there are other initiatives that people should be aware of that will be coming to fruition with even different drugs that address some of the underlying uh, pathophysiology of HCM in a way that may improve how patients feel as well, particularly the challenging group of non-obstructive HCM patients that are frustrated, rightfully so, with how they feel with their disease. There are some new drugs that are gonna be investigated very soon. They're in a very unique way. They, they address some of the issues that, that we remain optimistic for. So in other words, it's a good time because there's a lot of interest in new drug therapy. So people should know that. Yeah, 25 years ago when the HCMA started, we literally had nothing with labeled indication, not even an implantable defibrillator at that time. That didn't yeah. come until like 1998, I think it was, uh, maybe 97. Um, but we, we were, 
like nobody was paying attention to us. Now we have devices, and we have better drugs, and we have great surgeons, and we have uh, catheter-based procedures. We have transplant. We have options. And yeah. many of us can live really good lives with HCM, and that's part of the very conflicted message that we send. Pay attention to us. This is serious. But you can be okay, too. It's a balance. But how do we get to that next part to find these people who are probably misdiagnosed or having symptoms that are related in some other, you know, they think it's pulmonary, they think it's psychological. How do we get doctors and at all levels, GPs, pediatricians, nurse practitioners in private practices all over America, how do we get them to be better at diagnosing HCM? What do we have to do as a community? This is, there's not an answer here. This is a conversation. Yeah, it, it is a tough one. That's why it's a conversation and not a clear, you know, answer. Um, it's, it's education over time, you know, in it's education, probably in a multi-pronged uh, strategy, you know, where we need to, you know, perhaps learn from other diseases, you know, even some other rare diseases, um, cardiac and non-cardiac wise that have, you know, found ways of elevating the visibility of the disease and the education around how to diagnose the disease, symptoms that should trigger a testing for the disease in a way that we, you know, maybe we haven't done or haven't done enough of for HCM that could, you know, be tools that could penetrate, educational tools that could penetrate um, the wide diversity of practitioners who, who really need to have that kind of education to make the diagnosis that are not making it maybe right now in a timely enough fashion. That includes pedi general pediatricians, pediatric cardiologists, adult cardiologists, internists. You know, there's a, a large group of, of physicians, not just, um, not just adult cardiologists, that, that, you know, I think the level of of understanding of symptoms that that could be HCM that should then trigger focus on that disease when seeing a patient in clinic, you know, probably need perhaps more development. And I think that's really maybe where we need to go. It's just greater educational penetration into the practicing community. Because remember, the practicing community, the medical practicing community, cardiologists, pediatricians, whatever it may be, incredibly busy. Medicine has become incredibly complex today than it was 20, 30 years ago. Even with an adult cardiology, the number of sort of specializations that have, that have emerged now is, you know, much greater than it was 10, 20 years. So, so the gaps in education, in a, you know, particularly when it's about rare or the more uncommon disease like HCM just in, continues to increase. And we've got to find a way to close the educational gap a little bit better. So I'm going to wrap up and then go to questions. So if you have any questions, uh, our Facebook community, uh, you can post them now and I'll be reading them in just a few minutes. We've had some interesting dialogue going on as we've been talking about family history and people sharing. So thank you for sharing all of that. Um, but I want to pivot a little bit. I asked you about what we can do with professionals. And then there's the question of what can we do to raise awareness in the community? And I'm going to tell my pyramid story, which I've told a thousand times to people within the HCM community, and it doesn't seem to make sense. But when I imagined the HCMA, I was sketching, I'm a sketch thinker, and I built a pyramid. And I decided that there's no purpose in raising awareness 
on the streets of Denville, New Jersey, or wherever you happen to be, if there's no place to send these people for competent care. So the top of the pyramid had to get built first. We had to have high quality center of excellence care where people who were diagnosed could get into the care of those who knew how to care for them. Um, so that was the start. Right now, the HCMA has 41 recognized center of excellence programs, and that's the, the patient community branding this care model the best for us, and that's right. what it means. It, it has all of the resources, and it works really well for us. Is it perfect? Probably not, but right. it's great. Now we can go down the pyramid and do more work to educate healthcare professionals so that they can make appropriate referrals up to the, the top of the HCM care pyramid. But now it's time to start talking to the people on the street because we have that opportunity. And one of the things that we've done here in the state of New Jersey a few years ago is we changed some laws. And it was kind of a down and dirty conversation with a couple of senators who got it. Um, thank you, Senator Madden. Um, they, they got the problem and they realized there was a smart way to, to have government step in and help us. And that was to build systems in place so that well child examinations include the same thing as a sports physical and that the people who are doing both the sports physicals and the well child exam needed a little extra education. So we created the online portal where they could go and learn about not only HCM, but dilated cardiomyopathy and Marfan's and long QT syndrome and other unusual cardiac manifestations that can cause cardiac arrest and advanced heart failure. So we did that in New Jersey, and we're about to launch an effort in 2021 to bring this same law to 11 other states so that we can all work together, patient community, physician community, and anybody who wants to volunteer for the cause to help improve identification of those at risk for HCM and other forms of genetic heart disease. So it's a big stretch. It's a lot of work to do, but it's smart legislation. It's not mandating anything more than questions and education. Mm -hmm. And it's cost effective in New Jersey. We've identified a number of families that I don't think we would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And we're here now and, and we can start to have this bigger conversation. We have more partners now. Face it, if there's drug companies making drugs to treat this population, they're invested in finding those people with the condition. And that's okay. We can have a very um, good relationship. We can keep our, our uh, silos tightly kept so that we're, we're not influencing people in the wrong way. The pharma is in their aisle. We're in ours. But we can be partners in raising awareness. And I think that's going to be really important in the future. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, look, you know, hats off to you again for, you know, one building the top of the pyramid, you know, I think the top of the pyramid, by the way, I think would, would it be fair to say that almost anybody in the United States is within a several hour drive of, of, of an HCM center where they can get really good care? I mean, that, that, yes. that's with something the ex that with the exclusion of Wyoming, Montana, and some areas of the Dakotas, you may have a 12 to 14 hour drive, but yeah. my original goal was a five hour drive for most Americans. And in 2020, we've hit it. So that's so made that goal. So it's everybody, almost everybody's within a five hour drive of, of a place where, 
there is focused expertise in this disease. So that's, I mean, that's huge. Again, for the for everybody listening, I mean, I mean, you know, going back 10, 15, 20 years ago, that was simply not the case, not even close to the case. You had a handful, five maybe, most of them east of the Mississippi or in the Midwest, and that was it. So, um, so that that the top of the pyramid, we we can't discount how huge that is. And then two, yeah, I mean, hats off to you for for the legislative end, end of things. I think that's also a huge component, which will make an enormous difference. It already, I think, has. I think in New Jersey, um, you know, in measurable ways. And I think the other thing we need to think about is how, and we've talked about this before, is you know, increasing the visibility, as you said, to the person on the street means we need a spokesperson. We need people to carry the message on a national level in a way that's different than you know the patient organization or the physician groups. So, you know, that would elevate without a doubt the 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 disease in a way that we just have not had that other diseases, even more rare than this one have had, as you know. Yep. We're working on that too. Yeah. Yeah. So some of them may not be the dignitaries and the names that you know, but we are working on ways for people to share real life stories called the Share Your Story program. Um, and I will put a call out right now. We have a lot of volunteers who have stepped up to the Share Your Story. We can give you the details on what that actually means if you contact us. But I do have to put a special call out right now to our younger, and by that I'm going to define it as under 45, um, group of individuals of color, Latinos, African Americans, uh, Native Americans, uh, Indian Americans. We need your face, your story, to make sure that people understand that HCM is not a Caucasian disease. It is not a, a disease of... 55-year-old white women from the Midwest, thank you all for helping and offering your stories, but we need some diversity here to show the true face of HCM and make sure that everybody understands who is and isn't at risk. So yep. um, come on, people, call me up. Let's do this. Yep. That's okay. huge. Absolutely. All right. So we have lots of comments about the use of genetic testing um, but and mostly some cautionary tales today. Um, somebody's talking about their father who passed in 1996, but nobody was told it was genetic, and they are one of six children who are now currently diagnosed with HCM. So, you know, back in the mid-'80s, we didn't know as much as we know today. And hopefully um, your story just clicked with somebody else who said, wait, my father died of a, quote, heart attack young back in the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. Take mm -hmm. it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, diagnosed. So when would you move to using an MRI in a family screening? That's a question that's come up a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. So I know it's a little, it's a little bit ambiguous, you know, and partly because it's an evolving area, but you know, in there, you may, for that reason, you may get different answers to that question, depending on who you're talking to. This is how I feel uh, about that, you know, <clears throat> question is that we like to get an MRI the first time we're evaluating in a screening manner children of affected parents. So in other words, once the child is uh, you know, able to get an MRI, usually 11, 12, 13, the beginning of puberty, we like to get the MRI there. Or if the child's coming to us you know, for the first time at some point during puberty, 
um, we get it then too. Uh, again, for the reason I talked about, to make sure that we didn't, that, that an area of increased wall thickness wasn't missed on the echo. And then two, to have a baseline to be able to compare in the best possible way with MRI, because MRI does that for us, allows us that, any potential changes that could come up over time. Okay. Right. So that, that's how we do it. I think that's clear enough. Um, I know for some people, um, I have somebody who's asking me about their 24 year old that they've had serial screenings and so far it's okay. You know, is it, they've not had an MRI yet. Is it a good idea at that, you know, mid 20 age, get the MRI and then sent them off on their every three to five year screenings? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that that's absolutely necessary because I, you know, it would depend on, you know, looking at the echo and the EKG. I guess what I would say is that MRI is so powerful in a way with the, you know, with the resolution and the clarity that it provides, that it just provides for that reason, so much assurance when it's normal that the patient doesn't have HCM, that, that, you know, that, 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 not an unreasonable idea to get it in that 24 year old for that reason if it's going to help also put you know to my to rest somebody's worry uh, uh still even with serial echoes that there could be some issue the mri would put that to rest so in that way a test like that which is completely safe is powerful and helpful so charles i hope uh that may have answered it a little bit that depending upon the outcomes of that MRI, of, of the echo and the checkups on your son. This is another one. Um, he's saying, but they've, they've never had an MRI. It's worth a conversation. Do we think that there's anything that can be you know, gained from the MRI right now or that we might want to use for the future? Um, sometimes the insurance companies aren't so keen on that. Well, we just want it for, for later. They don't like that so much. But if there's anything that's been borderline or this, you know, they're not clear, it definitely makes sense. So, you know, we, we've been getting into the weeds a lot with, you know, HCM and obstruction and anatomy and papillary muscles over the past couple of weeks of podcasting. Today, I wanted to just take a break because I think we all needed a little bit of a moment to inhale and think about the future. And maybe this was a very well-timed podcast um, as we're kind of on the precipice of some changes here in the country as well. And I'm going to um, leave it there. We've just had some a, a lot of people commenting and like that they're excited to hear about new opportunities and that it's promising to finally hear about people paying attention to us and our needs from the pharma community. So um, I'm going to wrap it up today and thank Dr. Marin for joining us again. Come back in about a month and we'll be back here podcasting again. Topic to be determined. Marty and I will talk about that later. And I just want to wish you all a very good weekend and that peace and maybe some, some kindness will touch the nation. And I will leave it at that. Well said. Well said. Let's leave it at that. That's uh, a good way to end. Okay. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at for HCM Warriors. That's the number four HCM Warriors.
Follow us on Twitter at 4hcm.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. Please remember to sign up for the HCM Strong Tour, Big Hearted Warriors Unite. Our virtual tour will begin September 3rd and include dates September 17th, October 8th, October 10th, October 24th, October 29th, November 12th, December 3rd, and December 10th. A few other events will be added. Check the updated registration information at 4hcm.org. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones Live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4hcm.org to learn more today. <laughs>